because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Today's show is going to be a Q&A. I've gotten a bunch of interesting questions over the last several weeks, and I'm actually going to have a really interesting guest next week, but no guest this week, so I thought I would take these uh, questions. And as a reminder, if you want to if you have a question you ever want to get it guaranteed to be answered on the show, you can make an accelerator contribution at industrialprogress.com/accelerate. And the first question today is going to be from an accelerator uh, actually. So, uh, the, I'll just give you an overview. The, the three big topics are going to be 100% renewable policies, violating stay-at-home orders, particularly why I did that publicly, and then the George Floyd saga. So lots and lots of interesting stuff to cover. Okay, let's uh, go right ahead with this. So this is from James. This is an accelerator uh, question. I'm writing with a suggestion for your consideration as a vehicle for gaining public and media attention. The Center for Industrial Progress could announce the True Green Challenge, uh, which is a potential name. The idea is that you would challenge any municipality in the USA to demonstrate the feasibility of powering a city with nothing but solar and wind uh, energy. So he has an elaboration. He says this would require a strict set of criteria. The city must be of sufficient population that it supports at least one hospital or nursing home where constant electric power is necessary for human survival. The city must be completely detached from any commercial power grid that can supplement the use of solar and wind generation. The city must not rely on grants or subsidies from any state or federal agency to achieve self-sufficiency. All of the productive activity used to achieve self-sufficiency must be powered by solar or wind energy. The city must demonstrate that it can supply power for a one-year period with reliability equal to or greater than that of the previous system based on the commercial power grid. The city must show that there was no significant decrease in population during the one-year period. In other words, there was not a mass egress of people due to a failure to supply reliable electric power. And then he says the Center for Industrial Progress would have to order some sort of would have to offer rather some sort of incentive for a city to undertake such a challenge. It would have to be more than a mere acknowledgement that the Center for Industrial Progress's previous position was wrong. I think some financial reward would be necessary. So I consider this a really interesting idea, and I want to just give what I think is the simplified version of this, because I don't think you need all the elements that James suggests, and I think some of them uh, would be counterproductive in terms of asking, well, everything involved has to be solar and wind powered. I think that here, what I think are the three keys. One is it has to be 100% self-sufficient solar and wind. So that can definitely include battery storage or some sort of storage. And it would certainly need to include that if it were possible. I think a really key criterion is no connection to the grid. That is the fossil fuel slash nuclear, and we could also say slash hydro grid. So the main thing is it just has to be self-sufficient and that means it's really important to specify no connection to the grid. And in terms of eligibility, I think the key is just any town or city with a manufacturing or comparably physical industry. So that could be agriculture, that could be mining. And this, I think, is plenty to isolate the issue of reliability and the issue of large quantities. You, it's different to say, well, oh, I have a, I have a town. Uh, you, I mean, you could imagine some sort of 
like vacation home or something like that where people, uh, you know, everything is sort of brought in there and then they're just living off solar panels and batteries and they're consuming very little electricity. But the, the key is we need energy primarily to produce things. So the question is, can you actually be a productive place based on 100% solar and wind? And so that's why I have this eligibility of any town or city with a manufacturing or comparably physical industry. So I really like that suggestion by James, and I think this kind of simplification uh, would help. Now, there's this question of funding, and I do think that to really make this a thing, I, I think these criteria can be used as a, as a generic kind of challenge, but I do think if we were to issue a national kind of challenge, we would need funding, and I think it needs to be uh, significant funding. So I'm not raising money for this right now, so don't send me money saying this is earmarked. Uh, but it, particularly if there are any corporate sponsors and we want to put together something like a million-dollar prize uh, offering this, I think that would be a really interesting thing. So if you're interested in that, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. But again, don't send any money uh, for this since it's not a real thing yet. And I'll just emphasize, I do think it's a good idea to have in mind, even if we don't do this challenge, to have in mind this challenge of self-sufficient solar and wind and asking people all the time, particularly when people say we're 100% renewable, ask, okay, well, are you actually self-sufficient or did you just connect yourself to a grid? Because if you connect solar panels and wind turbines to the grid, they're basically parasites. They depend on 100% reliable energy and then just sometimes they get to butt in if they happen to be able to produce energy and then the rest of the system has to constantly accommodate them and that makes it inefficient because it's like stop and go traffic and has to go up and down with the you know with the um i was going to say eccentricities but i'm looking for a different word that i can't uh i think well, like you could think of it as the erratic nature of the solar and wind and so it's not it's not self-sufficient at all and it doesn't prove anything about its ability to scale. It, in fact, indicates that it has no real ability to scale and certainly not at low cost. So it's really valuable with solar and wind because they are, as I call them, unreliables to have this idea of self-sufficiency. And anyone who says that they're 100% those or that that's possible, tell them, okay, I want to see a self-sufficient example of this in a productive area of the United States or anywhere else around the world. And they won't be able to do it, and that will teach a very good lesson about the need for reliable energy. So thanks, James, for that idea slash uh, question. And again, if yeah, anyone wants to uh, bankroll a prize like this, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Okay. Second question. Why did you publicly violate Gavin Newsom's stay-at-home uh, order? So let me give the context for this. Uh, I'll explain this tweet in, in a second for those of you who can see. For those of you who are just listening, I'll, I'll describe the tweet in a second uh, as well so you can, in effect, see it through your mind's eye uh, at least. So I got a notice maybe a month ago that, uh, that an event, I'm going to be vague about this, but an event that had uh, contracted me to speak decided to cancel the event. And you might think, oh, it's because of COVID-19. They're just canceling the event because of, uh, you know, safety concerns with the event. But no, it's actually, no, the event, it's, it's an event later this year, but that event uh, 
will be going on uh, without me. And uh, the reason that it'll be going on without me is because some of the leaders of the event found my public statements about COVID-19 offensive, and in particular, this tweet. So this is a tweet, and the picture is of me. Now, by the way, I'm standing alone. I'm not in a crowd of, of people. Uh, it's me standing alone, smiling with a surfboard in the dark. And uh, I'll read you the tweet. The tweet says, fascist Gavin Newsom has failed to protect nursing homes, uh, plus forced countless Californians into getting high doses of COVID-19 by keeping them indoors. Now he's focusing on outlawing, dot, 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 the beach. And then I say, proud to be an outlaw, enjoying bioluminescent night surfing, and then I have the hashtag that I like to use, safer outside. So just so you know, why is it dark and why do I have a surfboard? So, um, very occasionally in certain oceans, including the Pacific Ocean, which is where, which borders many places, including where I live in Southern California, there's this phenomenon of bioluminescence. And it's just this unbelievable natural phenomenon where a certain kind of organism in the ocean makes the ocean kind of reddish during the day. But at night, it's actually this incredible neon, like light blue green. I mean, it just seems completely unreal, actually. And when you move in the water, it, it somehow activates and it's just so the water lights up. So even if it's pitch dark outside, there's this, it's like, I mean, it's like a glow stick, but a million times better. So Gavin Newsom's orders to not go to the beach and not to surf happened to coincide with this amazing phenomenon that, you know, I may never see this again in, in my life to the degree that it was, uh, it was happening. And so just so you, just so you understand that. So I'll give more of my reasoning in a second, but that's just explaining the bioluminescent, uh, night surfing. So, uh, let's, one more thing to say about this before I get to the events uh, issue with this. I should say that everything I said here, so this was, this was well over a month ago. I forget. I don't have the date with me, but in terms of Failed to protect nursing homes. So a huge percentage of California deaths are from nursing homes. So from the beginning, I've been saying, if you're going to do isolation, do selective isolation with the most vulnerable. That at the time was considered sometimes an extreme view, and I got criticized for it. But I think basically everyone agrees now that selective isolation would have been much more rational. Um, the main kind of selective isolation is isolating those who there's actual evidence that they are sick and therefore demonstrable danger to others. But if you're gonna isolate people where there's no evidence, then the only way that makes sense to do that at all is where they're actually the most vulnerable people, nursing homes being by far the most vulnerable place because of an elderly population and because of a tendency to be poorly ventilated and to have fairly close quarters. And then I said also force countless Californians into getting high doses of COVID-19 by keeping them indoors, we're seeing more and more and more confirmation of this idea that being indoors is really dangerous because you're getting high doses of the virus, likely in aerosolized form, which is the worst way to get it. So again, we're seeing more confirmation of what I was saying back then. And then we're seeing more and more confirmation that being outside, particularly with any kind of distance, is of virtually no risk. And of course, we have this phenomenon now, uh, which happened after I was, this event was canceled of now there's this whole issue of, well, now it seems totally okay to have even very close mass gatherings 
if you are protesting uh, a cause that's considered more important than protesting the lockdowns was. So I can talk about, I'm going to talk about that later this, this show, but I think we've seen that there's in terms of just the facts of the matter and the way opinion is going, there's more and more vindication of the position I was taking. Okay. So why did the event, uh, cancel? Well, they said, you admit to violating orders put forth by the government focused on health and safety with which you disagree. So that's true. I did violate orders put forth by the government that were focused on health and safety, and they claimed to be focused on health and safety, and I definitely disagreed with them. And they said the supposedly right policy, and they said this is what you know companies do. If I, if I, and here's the quote: disagree with a particular regulation don't violate the rule, but work to change it, unquote. So I want to just note there's one switch here, which has gone from order to regulation. A regulation at least has some semblance of, okay, this is a clear law on the books that has been thought through, and there's been a real process behind it, whereas that's definitely not true with these orders uh, at all. I think regulations can have the character of orders often as well, because they're not actually deliberated in the law, and the regulators get sometimes an almost dictatorial power, but at least there's a process there. Here, there was not any kind of actual process that I think had any basis. And so this goes to why did I do this? And so one question that I had when this event was canceled that is even more relevant now is, would you have applied this to the civil rights movement? So if I had, if I was in a civil rights protest uh, and I was engaging in civil disobedience uh, for a civil rights issue, for, for uh, I mean, a civil rights issue, particularly that has to do with um, civil rights of racial minorities, which I think is a crucially important cause, has been in this country's history, and and there are situations where it still is a crucial cause to be fought for where, when racial injustices occur. They're fortunately less, much less frequent than they were 40 years ago, but they still definitely occur. And so in both cases, we recognize, okay, civil disobedience is appropriate. So I was wondering, well, what if I had done civil disobedience? Would the event have, have canceled me? And I kind of uh, doubted it. But I think civil disobedience is, was totally necessary here and is totally appropriate. So when I think of civil disobedience, I think of at least two goals. One is to bring attention to an unjust law, and two is to bring attention to an unconstitutional abuse of the law. That is where the law is actually being violated by the enforcer of the law. And this is an incredibly pheno common phenomenon in history. The fact that somebody is authorized to enforce the law doesn't mean that they're actually enforcing the law. We have all sorts of procedures for challenging our executives when they're not actually enforcing the law properly. And one mechanism is civil disobedience, where we can say, in effect, look, I'm putting my freedom on the line because I believe this is wrong, and I'm willing to go to court to challenge this. And that's that's what I was doing here. And in the case of this situation with Gavin Newsom, I thought he was doing the second thing. So I thought he was violating the law, being lawless, just using very flimsy justification for forcing people to be in their homes indefinitely. And for reasons I've given on this podcast in the past, and you can listen to the one in particular with Ankar Gatte to get into the details of what I think the government should do, I thought this is a complete misuse of government power. It was not at all the appropriate way to deal with this virus. And in fact, as I discussed in the Safer Outside episode with Daniel Gorbatenko, another Power Hour episode, it's actually harmful to people, even in terms of COVID-19, to force them to be indoors. 
because they're much more likely to get a high dose of the virus than if you allow them to be outside and encourage them to be outside where they're either not going to get it or they're going to get a much lower dose version of it, which is something their body is much uh, more able to fight off. So in any case, this is what I believed. I thought that our government officials were violating the law. I definitely thought they were acting unjustly. This was a crucial time in the history of freedom. And this was one mechanism at my disposal. And I chose to do it with surfing in particular because that was clearly an activity that made no sense to restrict. There's no science behind that. There's all the science against that. It's good to be outdoors. Uh, it's, I mean, it's good for so many different reasons. And, and you know, some, this was during the night, but usually it's during the day. And so you have, you have sunlight, you have vitamin D. It's just an, and then, in, you know, the outdoor air has humidity, which is bad for the virus. So it's just, it has, I mentioned before, the diluting effect on the virus. Uh, I'm also not in a vulnerable population at all. I'm under 40. And you know, and, and have no comorbidities whatsoever, no pre-existing conditions uh, whatsoever. And so this was just a case where the law, it was unjust and it was lawless. And I thought somebody needed to say something about it. And you see with the current protests going on, which unfortunately have uh, in many cases become riots, those are people who are saying, I think there's something wrong with the system. And my belief, as I'll discuss later, is I think there are certain things wrong with the system. I think many of the things people are protesting for are either completely unclear or completely counter counterproductive, such as any kind of defunding the police versus reform. I think that's going to hurt individuals immensely of all races, probably in particular black individuals in poor neighborhoods. If police become disinterested in those areas or reluctant to police in those areas. I think most people in those areas very much want maybe even more police to be there. But in any case, we, we are now recognizing, hey, it's important that if you think the government is doing something wrong, that you stand up. And so I was doing it in a very healthy way, a very responsible way. I was willing to take the consequences and I'm proud of that. And I would I would definitely do it again. And I've wondered since, would they have canceled me if I had participated in a highly non-distance protest against police brutality? So you have people who are violating all sorts of social distancing rules. Now, I don't think, I think as long as they're outdoors, it's probably pretty low risk, but you could make an argument that if you're in super close quarters, there still is some risk and that's being violated all the time. And it's interesting that nobody is taking that uh, seriously. They're saying, oh, well, the value of the cause outweighs the danger, but you know, for many of us, we thought, well, the, the cause of freedom there, in a sense, you're opposing police brutality. That's that's that the cause of freedom. That's the legitimate part of the protest anyway. Well, in terms of government basically imprisoning people in their homes indefinitely and stopping them from pursuing their livelihoods and preventing them from going to the doctor in some cases, I think that is a crucial violation of freedom. And so that's why I, I fought against it. And I, I find it offensive that people think that oh, it's, there's nothing like for you to engage in civil disobedience for your freedom and for the freedom of 300 plus other million Americans, that's somehow uh, unimportant. I thought it was very important. And in part, I thought it was important because so few people were standing up for it in the first place. That's the time when you really need to do something is when everyone is not doing it, when everyone else is in the streets and where you're getting praised by everybody and getting pats on the back and you know, you get all kinds of status. 
yeah, there can be value in participating in something if you really believe in it. But I think the real time to do it is where very few other people are doing it. That's what I admire most. And that's what I aspire to most is to stand up when it's actually the right thing, but it's not the popular thing. And as I mentioned uh, on, I mentioned this on Twitter and I shared it on my newsletter. I know not all of you listening get my newsletter, but if, if you don't go to alexepsteinlist.com and get it, uh, I said, I would like to read an article about how police brutality and lockdowns are manifestations of the same evil. Insufficient legal restraints on government's coercive power. That power should only be used to protect freedom and must be exercised with the utmost care and caution. One more uh, point about this, because this, this issue of getting an event canceled, I just want to make a point about this that I sometimes get from, and this is not by any means from the majority of people in the fossil fuel industry, but I have had it uh, before. So I just want to comment on this. Sometimes I'll get the comment, like in this case, where, hey, we love, we love that you're such a, an effective champion of the fossil fuel industry, but this other controversial thing, we don't want to be associated uh, with that. This happened in 2016. If you look up Alex Epstein, Massachusetts Attorney General, you can see what happened then. And it had to do with they were, I believe, completely unconstitutionally attacking ExxonMobil and me by extension in terms of free speech. And I had some very choice words for the Massachusetts Attorney General. And I remember somebody canceled something and said, like, oh, we don't want to be associated with this. Like, and in effect, it's, well, we love your controversial views on our industry. But if you have this controversial view on free speech, or if you're if you're calling somebody a fascist, like we don't want to be connected with that. But I'm right to call them a fascist. What is a fascist? I mean, if, you know, fascism is a system. It's a system where you supposedly own your own property in your own life, um, but the government has dictatorial control over. That's really the core of fascism, that you supposedly own your property, but the government can control everything you do with it, so you don't really own it. Whereas socialism is, in its pure sense, the government owns everything. And it, it owns, it has financial responsibility for it, but it, it has control over it. And basically in fascism, it's just the government has control. Uh, and, and it's just nominal ownership of property, nominal ownership of your life. And that's what I felt like was happening with Gavin Newsom. Like, He's just saying, like, yeah, I can force you to stay in your home no matter what. I get to control all the property in California and get to decide where you go. And I thought it was definitely true with the Massachusetts Attorney General, where they're basically saying, no, you're not allowed to say what you think to Exxon about climate change uh, because we think you're wrong. And in effect, we own you. So, uh, but uh, the, the thing I want to focus on is this is not like, like I think when people are saying, if, if you think like, hey, I love that Alex has this controversial view that favors me, but I don't like this controversial view about something else, that's okay. You can definitely believe that. But I think it's important that the reason that I have my views on fossil fuels, and I think the reason that they're very effective is because they come from a place of an honest interest in human flourishing and human freedom. And that was how I went through the effort of figuring out the truth about fossil fuels and communicating it to people. And people can tell usually that it's coming from an honest place. It, it sounds very different than somebody who just happens to be in the industry. They've been there all their life and everyone knows kind of they have to say positive stuff about the industry. No, I came as a total outsider. I had no pre-existing connection, no financial connection. I came to all these conclusions before any of 
I had any relationship with anyone, but it's because I was, I had this core belief in human flourishing and human freedom and thinking of everything in those terms. So yes, the same thing that leads me to the position that some people in the industry like about the industry being good, that's going to lead me to other controversial positions because we don't have a culture that is consistently focused on human flourishing and human freedom. We don't have that remotely. So of course, anyone is free to do anything they want in terms of events, but I, I just want to say, I hope people appreciate that the, re, that the key to defend, if you do something controversial, that's good that people don't agree with. The key to championing that is to do so from, a, from a, an honest place of concern for human flourishing and human freedom. And that's going to lead you to some other controversial conclusions as well in today's culture. So I'm, uh, I'm very grateful that I have, that there are a lot of events that really value that honesty and that don't mind that I say what I think on on a number of things and that embrace that. And I'm also very grateful that now we have accelerators who help support uh, my company's research, research and development efforts and our promotional efforts, and that helps immensely as well. And if you want to become one of those, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. So that is why I publicly violated the stay-at-home orders because I believe believed it was a necessary act of civil disobedience. Okay. Let's get to the final question. What do you think of the killing? Um, the screen, unfortunately, says or George George Floyd, but it meant uh, should be of George Floyd and the protests and riots that followed. So I, I got this from a bunch different bunch of different people were interested in my take on this. And when people are interested in my take on this, I, I tend to think that the, the value I can provide is more of giving a framework for thinking about something versus being a subject matter expert. Because I'm not a subject matter expert in police brutality, I'm not a subject matter expert in race relations, and uh, a number of other things related to this. Although I, in my former life, I did study these things, I think, more than, than most people. But I do have a certain expertise in how to think through things from a human flourishing perspective, so I just wanted to, uh, to share that. And I, I did this recently on my other podcast. So the main thing I'm going to do in answering this question is actually play you a very extended uh, part of my last podcast, which was called How to Think Constructively About Public Injustices. So not just the the killing of George Floyd, which is definitely a public injustice. And as you'll hear me talk about, it's very disturbing in a number of ways, um, but it applies to other kinds of public injustices that we see, particularly those involving police conduct. So... There are four questions that I'm going to talk about that you'll hear in a second. So what actually happened? What, if any, mistakes in policy caused this to happen? What changes in policy are being proposed? And what are the likely positive and negative consequences of the proposed policies? So to get all the details on that, just hang on and I'll play you that uh, extended, very extended excerpt. It'll be at least probably about 30 minutes from that episode. And then afterward... I'm just going to close the show, this show of Power Hour, by sharing with you a really interesting email I got from a police officer who follows my work, and he, I found it really illuminating. So I'll share that with you, but uh, for now, enjoy this excerpt from the Human Flourishing Project. We had a very you know, disturbing public revelation of the death of 
George Floyd um, by, you know, well, I'll talk about that, the, the details of that in a minute, but the, you know, the George Floyd death and then following that, lots of outrage and in particular protests that quickly became uh, riots. And it's just a, a huge time of unrest right now. Uh, many people feeling there's all kinds of injustice in the world. And so, you know, I, I can only help so much on this kind of thing, but I thought what I would do today is talk about the topic, how to think constructively about public injustices. Because with the case of George Floyd, I think we're in a situation where there's something really disturbing that could be used uh, to affect positive change, but also uh, in many ways is already being used in a negative way. So I just wanted to share my thoughts and I'm going to you know, title this episode, How to Think Constructively About Public Injustices. And it's mainly about what kinds of questions should we ask when we hear of a, and I'm, I'm describing it as public injustice because this is something that in some way we're all witnessing, we're all being asked uh, to think about and it's it's something we have to decide. Okay, what you know, what should be done uh, about this? And these often occur with different kinds of police type things because police are supposed to, um, you know, are supposed to enforce justice. And so, if if we see something that appears to be injustice, then it's very understandable for people to be upset about it and want to do something about it. Sometimes this can be true with different kinds of trial verdicts, uh, but it's just the kind of common situation. Not not super common but but the situation we see not too infrequently where there's you know there's something public it seems really wrong and it's motivating a lot of people to want to change things and so the question today is how to think uh, constructively about that and what I want to do is basically just share four questions that I think are helpful for thinking about these things and I'll, I'll share a little bit about how I think they apply to this situation but the main thing is just to share the questions and encourage you to uh, to ask those and to ask uh, other people those, and hopefully that can lead to some constructive outcome. So I'll give you the questions overall, and then I'll talk a little bit about the current situation. So the, the four questions are, what actually happened? What, if any, mistakes in policy caused this to happen? That might be the most important one. What, if any, mistakes in policy caused this to happen? What changes in policy are being proposed? And then what are the likely positive and negative consequences of the proposed policies? So again, question one, what actually happened? Question two, what if any mistakes in policy caused this to happen? Question three, what changes in policy are being proposed? Question four, what are the likely positive and negative consequences of the proposed uh, policies? So let's start off with what actually happened. And in a sense, this is one I have the least uh, to say about, but it's really important when we're talking about a public injustice or supposed injustice, to know as much as possible what actually happened, because it, it you know it can be. I think there have been situations in the past where there's a claim of an injustice, and there definitely wasn't one when you investigate, but there was the appearance of one. Now, in this case, I think there definitely has been one, but there's a question of what you know what happened, like what, and that that to we had to have to really understand what happened to understand what is the injustice. Um, involved. So just if you if you look at the case of George Floyd, like it's it's really hard to get a, a thorough explanation even of what people think really happened. And one you know one way to get at that is what are the different accounts in terms of is there anyone defending 
uh, the procedures, were the procedures violated? Are they the wrong procedures? I mean, what we can see by the video that's, I think is definitely important to watch. And I've, I've tried to watch a bunch of them in a bunch of different angles. I mean, you can see, I mean, the thing that's super disturbing is just, you see this guy and, and particularly once you know, okay, the, the crime involved or this, the suspected crime is like a forged $20 bill. So this is not somebody who's trying to murder somebody who's like an active threat to anybody. So in this case, you're thinking, okay, this is a situation where you would expect a kind of minimal, um, amount of force. And then, you know, you see him and he seems subdued. And yet, you know, the main police officer, um, the Derek Chauvin, you know, has his knee on his neck and there's other people restraining him and cops holding them away. And you can just see that it's, it's just, you just like, what, what is happening here? Why is this, how is this possibly necessary? Why is this cop so indifferent to this guy? I mean, this guy's saying, I can't, you know, I can't breathe. What, what, and in another aspect of it is just people are, are talking to the cops and asking them, Hey, what's going on? And the cops aren't saying anything. So it's like, they don't feel any need to explain themselves, to justify themselves, even though to any bystander, I mean, this looks, I mean, this looks literally murderous to be doing, uh, to this guy. And so I don't have too much to say about what actually happened, except they're very clearly some very bad things that happened. Uh, but even then I would want to know like, okay, what is there like, what is the explanation? Like, is it, cause it doesn't, I think the mainstream explanation seems to be something like, it's just like cops sort of overflowing with racism, callously killed this guy. And this is not what it looks like. It doesn't even, I mean, it, there can definitely be a racial component, but the thing that really seems to stand out from what I know of the evidence is just like the complete excessiveness of the force, the lack of communication, the complete indifference toward the suffering of the individual and the possible death of the individual. I mean, I've heard some things about like, okay, is it that in some way they were restraining him for his own good because he was intoxicated and like there was some risk of him going in. I mean, if that was the case, then there's still the element of, well, they need to, like they would need to explain that. And there needs to be some transparency about it. Cause otherwise everyone would have every reason to think the police are breaking the law and we need to, we might even need to risk our lives to stop what, um, what they're doing. So what, um, what actually happened? And it's not enough that it's, I mean, one thing is it has to be actually bad, but I want to know, okay, what ways is this bad? What actually happened? And sometimes it's useful to ask, okay, what are, are there different sides to the story? What's, what's a realist, another way to think of this is what's a realistic way this could have happened, taking into account human motivations. And I think when we talk about, Often we talk about motivations of bad things. It's easy to just dehumanize people and act like, oh, they're totally different and they're just bad and they're just racist and they're just, but there's something going on. So what is going on inside these people's heads? What's going on with the policy? I want to know these things to know what happened. And then that's the only way I'm going to know, okay, what, you know, what are the policy changes that need to happen? So what actually happened? And if anyone has any really good accounts of what actually happened that are you know, unusually objective, please send them to me, alex at alexepstein.com. But for our purposes, let's say, I mean, I'll say, yeah, so there are some really, really bad things that happened here, at least in, in my current understanding. And so I think there's definitely, it's not a case where, oh, everything went well. I mean, far, the farthest thing from it, I think. And so then 
there's this question, and this might be the most important question of what if any mistakes in policy caused this to happen? And, and why am I emphasizing policy? Well, what can happen is that you have the right policy, so in this case, the right set of laws and rules for police, and they were it's just a failed application. So you have a cop, let's say that, or in this case, several cops, though, who are going against the rules. And in the end, but then in that case, you would have rules about what happens when you go against the rules. And then they would be presumably prosecuted and punished. And then you could say, okay, it was really bad that they violated the rules, but there's not a fundamental policy change. Or maybe, maybe it would be, there's a, there's a policy change somewhere else. So it's, is it a policy change in terms of the, you know, you've heard unions, unions pressuring, even bad pressuring, uh, government such that it's really hard to fire a member of the police force or, you know, insufficient training in certain ways. But it's really important to just have an idea of, okay, do we think the policy was right and just somebody failed to act uh, in accordance with the policy and that can happen and then just the policy, need, then, then the punitive policy needs to be enforced or is there something wrong with the policy? And in this case, I am... I very strongly suspect that it's there's a bunch of things wrong in the policy. And so you know, I've heard, and again, I'm, I'm focusing on questions in this episode because I don't have at all the expertise on this issue, but I, I do have, I think, some expertise in how to think constructively about these things. And so I'm in part asking these, raising these questions because I think they help us get toward the answer and you can also find better sources. And again, I'm really interested in any kind of better sources. But if you look at, I mean, so one one thing that people have raised that re- resonates a lot with me is the level of militarization of the police. And this is something that's often glorified on TV, but essentially having just a lot of overlap between the way our military officers are armed and deployed and the way police officers are armed and deployed, including just having these incredible amounts of protection and going in these teams and like busting down doors and having these amazing uh, kinds of weapons and in some way having an itchy trigger finger, you know, that kind of thing can happen. And there's just, when you're talking about the police, these are people whose their whole job is to protect our freedom. So they their conduct needs to be very circumscribed so that they're actually acting in a way that's consistent with protecting freedom. It's not just, oh, anything that goes wrong at all, then they have they can use unlimited force. And so something like, why is it that that there's this much force being applied when it's this kind of when you're talking about a potential you know, forged $20 bill. Maybe there's an explanation for that, but I haven't heard it. And so that's a kind of variable. I think that's a real thing. There's also people talk about this issue of lack of qualified immunity. So police are in certain ways immune to prosecution. And that seems like a, you know, a very plausible thing that's going wrong in terms of policy just from what I know, the things I'm looking for, okay, what, what, what is causing the, the problematic elements here? So what is causing the excess, seemingly excessive use of force? What's also the, there's a lot of questions about what's causing the lack of transparency. I, I find lack of transparency by government to be in general, very disturbing. And I've, I've talked a lot about with lockdowns, how part of it is just, there's no real explanation of it. 
and there's a huge amount of arbitrary power. I just think that's completely inappropriate for government in general. And whether you're making these these kinds of you're making these kinds of dictates in a in a seemingly civilized way, but you're really ultimately forcing people to act in accordance with them, and it's ultimately backed up by the police. Whether it's that where the police aren't really at the fore, or whether it's something where their their ability to use force is completely at the fore because they can actually, you know, their misconduct can actually kill somebody who doesn't deserve uh, to be killed. So the question again is, what if any mistakes in policy caused this? to happen. And, and, and I don't think without a clear idea of that, it's almost impossible to do anything constructive. And and I think the most one can do if one has no idea about this is to say, hey, there's something really wrong here. Let's have a discussion about what, if any, mistakes in policy caused this to happen. The third question is what changes in policy are being proposed? This is important because we want to know the policy options. It's also very important if we're considering joining any particular cause or method of dealing with it. And I think this came up in the past week because there was a, you know, a very wide phenomenon of people putting uh, like a black screen on their social media profiles and sometimes using the hashtag, I think it was Blackout Tuesday or Black Lives Matter. And I always want to know what changes in policy are are being proposed? Because as I'll talk about with the next question, there's just such a potential for the wrong policies to be proposed to deal with a wrong, but to have the, you know, another wrong. So two wrongs don't make a right type thing. So whenever somebody is, is they're protesting or saying something, I want to know what policies are being proposed. And just to familiarize myself with any organization, what are they actually saying should be done? And then that'll just move right into the fourth question, which is what are the likely positive and negative consequences of the proposed policies? So if if you look at this issue, there's such a wide range of things being proposed. And I think on on the reasonable side, well, I would I would have three categories, like reasonable, unreasonable, and nothing. Uh, but in a sense, the nothing is the worst. But so the reasonable would be, let's say there's the congressman, Justin Amash, and he's focused on the ending qualified immunity. And that's something where I would want to see, okay, what are the positives and negatives of that? But there, there's a plausibility that, that has a logic to it, seems reasonable. But again, I would that's the kind of thing we still need to really think through it and think about, okay, are there issues? What was And one question is, what was the reason for having this qualified immunity in the first place? What led to that? Have those reasons changed? I would just want to know um, those kinds of things. But I, I would say that I have not seen most of what I've seen has been in the, poly, the category of things that are either unreasonable or very, very far-fetched to me and certainly not uh, justified by I mean by uh, evidence. So you know I saw one kind of meme going up about okay, here are eight different things and they say something like one of them was no strangleholds. Now I, I probably have a lot more familiarity with strangleholds than most people because I do it recreationally in terms of Brazilian jiu Jitsu. Um, but there are a whole bunch of reasons why you would want strangleholds and why those can actually be much more humane than shooting people. And I know that the Brazilian jiu-jitsu community has done a lot of work with law enforcement, helping them learn how to control people 
in a humane way. So I think that that stranglehold can be part of the most humane strategy. And if you're taught really well, it's essentially zero risk to people. But and I got just really upset when I noticed people just saying, oh yeah, no strangleholds. Like there was a stranglehold here. It wasn't, I don't even think it was technically a stranglehold, but they had a knee on somebody's neck with his face in the ground. So that, that seems like, I mean, when there's no resistance, this is just, I cannot see any justification for that whatsoever. But to go to say no strangleholds, this is the, this is where we can totally do more harm than good by just saying, okay, there's something bad going on, but we're not going to think it through. And we're just going to say, here's something we should do. And then let's get a law passed. And then, but it can just have huge amounts of destruction. You know, another one that I just think is totally irrational is the defund the police. I mean, this is one where I, I know for a fact that just people, particularly in poorer areas and often minority areas are just terrified of this idea of defunding the police because in many, many cases, what they feel like is the police have problems, but the real thing is the police are protecting them from criminals and what they don't want to do, often criminals of the same race, and what they don't want is the police to leave their area because they will be very much at the mercy of uh, criminals. And this connects to another kind of a policy of sorts. I mean, you can think of it as the protesting and in particular the rioting as a kind of policy, as in they're saying, well, this is this is justified. There is this injustice. And so this is this is part of our policy, is we are going to get attention by uh destroying property. And even with the protesting, I see this narrative that, oh, well, protesting is the most American thing. What could be more American than protesting? I don't know. I think you should be able to protest on your own property and protest in a way that respects people's rights. And certainly in the era of social media, we have a lot to, a lot of ways we can do that and get attention. But to say that when there's an injustice that you get to indefinitely disrupt everybody's lives and just swarm the streets indefinitely and prevent, you know, prevent people from going to work. I mean, you're going to kill people who can't get to the hospital, for example. I, I think there's this whole, I mean, that's, this is a whole other subject, but we, I think we should think about when, even when we hear somebody is protesting as a response, not just say reflexively, oh, that's good, but say, is that really a fair and proper thing to do? What are the positive and negative consequences of that? Because these protests have hugely negative consequences, even leaving aside the rioting. And if you look at the rioting, I mean, it's just so tragic to see people's just lie. I mean, literally many people getting killed in these things. And then they're just, they're just, people's life's work getting destroyed, people being terrified, people saying like, I'm not going to rebuild this business. Again, it's just, it's so bad. And so much of it is coming from not this idea that we don't have to think through our response. We just have to be upset. And if there's something that's really bad, then, then anything is permitted. A final area of the proposed policies is the kind of just general, let's shut down capitalism type stuff. And this is where just, you really need to think about, is there any basis for this whatsoever? Because if you think about, okay, what are the actual police states? Those are not capitalist countries. Capitalist countries are countries that respect property rights. The police states, which often call themselves socialist, those are, those are the ones where police have absolute power and abuse it left and right. 
Uh, so just just to say, okay, this there's a really something really bad that happened, and so we're going to attack the whole capitalist system, including people's property rights. That is just a completely unjustified reaction to all of this. So unfortunately, I don't think that people are thinking through what changes are being proposed and what are the likely positive and negative consequences of the proposed policies, because most of the proposed policies or even just the actions taken so far are just hugely, hugely negative. So those are the, and I wish I had a more positive note to end these questions on, but I think that that is, I'm raising this in part just because it's not a positive thing right now, but I think these constructive things, there can be positive consequences. There is a world in which we took what happened in the George Floyd case and we used it to really improve how police forces function insofar as there are policy problems. Like There is a world where that could happen and I'm not seeing it happen right now, so I would just try to make a contribution toward that. Now, as, as we wrap up, I want to in the context of these four questions, just share what I think are some mistakes that I think that are causing unconstructive responses. I'll just go through these quickly. So one is yes, but thinking with regard to injustices. So you see, I've seen a bunch of versions of this, but some people who've been really opposed to the riots, which I'm very sympathetic with, have said, yes, you know, yes, it was a horrible thing that happened to George Floyd, but the riots are worse. And then people say, well, no, yes, riots are bad. You know, destroying a building is bad, but killing an innocent person is worse. Um, and then there's even this view of like, oh, well, yes, he did this, but he was a bad guy in some definite ways. I think that's definitely true, and I think it's totally wrong for the media to act. I mean, there's this NPR narrative like, oh, this is a gentle giant and not talking about like a serious criminal history, including some really bad stuff he did during his life. But he definitely did not deserve to die this way. That did not, that was not being punished for that. And so, but that it's an example of like, you want not yes, but thinking, but yes, and thinking. When, when we're dealing with multiple injustices, it's not useful to say, okay, well, this one is bad, or this this one is, uh, is bad, but my injustice is really, really bad. And you just think, why are you doing that? So I, I just say when we're dealing with these multiple injustices, and particularly if there's an unjust response to an injustice, it's it's really valuable to just say, okay, these are all injustices, and let's think about what's the interrelationship among the different injustices and the different issues involved versus like saying one doesn't count or another doesn't uh, count. And I just seeing a lot of that, and I don't think that's at all constructive. Uh, another one is taking easy actions to gain status and avoid shaming. So I would put a lot of the, not all of it, because I can't speak to all of it, but a lot of the use of the black box and the use of the expression black lives matter i am very suspicious of and I, i'm but i should say i'm very suspicious of anything in life that is done that gives easy status anything where there's easy cuz what does it mean that it gives you easy status you don't really have to do anything and you get viewed as doing the right thing and often it's you gain status easily and you avoid shaming easily but if it's really if there's really just that clear cut an issue 
then probably every, almost every reasonable person is going to agree on it. But usually what happens is the issue involved that you're, that you're endorsing is not clear-cut. So if it's the death of George Floyd was a grave injustice or the way that occurred, then I think almost everybody agrees with that. But then it's people are then saying they're having to repeat like the hashtag Black Lives Matter or Blackout Tuesday. But that's not something obvious. If you look at what Black Lives Matter stands for, what what positions they've taken, you definitely couldn't say those are all obvious positions. And then a lot of the positions that are being connected with that, you know, very closely, whether they're explicitly part of the official Black Lives Matter movement or not, but things like defund police or certain characterizations of generalizations about police or generalizations about most Americans being racist in different kinds of ways, those are certainly not obvious, even if you think they're they're true. And so these, these kinds of easy actions, what they end up doing is they don't clarify the issue, they just actually lead to a lack of discussion about the issue, and one can very easily inadvertently support a bad policy. So you, if you just think about Maybe by putting up a black box, maybe I'm supporting a policy, maybe I'm going to contribute to the defunding of police that's going to hurt a lot of innocent, you know, let's just say in this case, black individuals in a poor neighborhood, if if you're focused in particular on innocent black lives mattering. And that can so easily happen just by taking these easy actions to gain status and avoid shaming. And related to this is the idea of like a big mistake, I think, is just activism without a clear goal. We should just be really clear on what what are we trying to achieve, and then thinking it through with the four questions I mentioned. And I saw a tweet recently that captured a lot of these things. Uh, it was by uh, Scott Adams, who's an uh, interesting guy. He's the creator of the Dilbert cartoon, but he's also a cultural commentator. And he says, I can't respect a protest that has these qualities. One, no specific suggestions on what to change. Two, data is not allowed into the debate. Three, dissenting opinions, no matter how respectful and well-meaning, are not allowed. Four, low regard for public safety. And I agree with that uh, totally. And I don't think Adam's point at all is that this is okay, or we should be indifferent, or we shouldn't do anything. It's that we need to think really carefully when we see these public injustices. So again, what actually happened? What if any mistakes in policy caused this to happen? What changes in policy are being proposed? And what are the likely positive and negative consequences of the proposed policies? Okay, I am back live, so to speak, on Power Hour. So I just want to read you this response I got from... A, I'm going to call him a rational police officer. I don't know him and uh, personally, but the way he's writing makes a ton of sense to me. And the overriding thought I had as I read this initially was, why aren't we hearing more voices like this? Why are we hearing just voices who have no context, no experience, have just clear agendas, why don't we hear from some more rational people in in law enforcement about what went wrong here? And uh, but really, tr- really trying to understand it for the purposes of making constructive changes versus just trying to use it as something to advance some pre-existing agenda, which I think is a lot of what's going on, or in some cases, just the agenda of looting uh, things. So I'm just going to read this to you, and I'll comment occasionally. So here's the beginning. I'm quoting him. So there are a lot of moving pieces regarding what happened. When I first saw the video, my assumption was that the officer was restraining someone who was undergoing 
exited delirium and the person ended up having a heart attack. So I just want to pause here as Alex. So it's really interesting that this the police officer has experience because there, there's a lot of questions about, look, as I said on the Human Flourishing Project, what exactly is happening? And so was it like, how could they possibly do that? Was there, is there any rationale for it? Even it was, I think, clearly the wrong way of approaching it. But like, and so there was this idea that, oh, maybe there was something where like the, and it might be, I don't know, exited delirium or excited delirium. I'm not sure if it was a, a misspelling, but like these are these are situations that most of us are not familiar with. I, I I have familiarity with strangleholds, but I don't have familiarity with all the different situations police officers are in. So it's really interesting just to hear. Oh, here's what somebody with experience says about this horrifying thing that we're seeing. So I'll continue. That being said, the officer seemed to be excessive in his force since Mr. Floyd was both handcuffed and non-combative. Furthermore, stating that he was having trouble breathing. Not one cop I know looked at that video and thought. Yeah, that looks right. Many of us rack our brains to try to, and figure out the possible motivations of the officer while only having limited info. And as Alex, I'll pause again. Like this is a this is the kind of thing I appreciate where somebody is even when it's disturbing and it's disturbing even to the police officer. They're trying to figure out what is actually happening, not to exonerate the police officer, but actually just to understand to know what is going wrong and and what actually should be condemned. Uh, so to continue, the best I can come up with is that the officer has had experience with uh, subjects suffering exited delirium and was zealously determined to keep Mr. Floyd from hurting himself or others. But the officer has 19 years on, and while that may have been his intention, the optics are bad, the technique is completely unnecessary, and it may have contributed to the cause of death. I think that is what most cops were thinking when they see the video. I think the autopsy, which now it seems there are competing findings, is the best scientific way of determining cause of death. Medical examiners are really good at what they do, and there is solid science that indicates causes of death. So in the end, the autopsy will assist substantially with the question, what happened? It will also play a huge role in the trial. If the autopsy finds evidence of suffocation, asphyxiation, or carotid artery obstruction as a cause or contributing factor of death, then it'll be pretty clear cut. If not, then who knows? And just interjecting as Alex, so this, again, just seems a very thoughtful not the kind of thing you see in the media, but makes sense. He continues, in terms of policies that come into play, I can really only speak from my own agency's set of rules. In terms of use of force, we are to use the least amount of force necessary to accomplish the task at hand, which is make an arrest and defend self or others, as opposed to the most amount of force allowable by law. I think a lot of other major agencies now have similar policies. The other factors that come into play when using force from a policy standpoint is what we call governmental interest. Are we going to get into a 100 mile per hour car chase with someone who stole a bag of chips from 7-Eleven? No. The risk in that, highly, in that highly outweighs the benefits of capture. On the other hand, the person who just murdered a bunch of people, ran over a cop when apprehended and is now on the loose, the benefit of that capture highly outweighs the risk of the pursuit. So interjecting again is Alex. So this makes a lot of sense. I don't know if I were an expert in this field, would I formulate the policy exactly this way? But it's good to know what the actual policies are. And one question I had with the Minneapolis situation is what were the actual policies and what was a violation of policy versus what was, uh, there's something wrong with the policy itself. That's really crucial. How does that apply to the situation in Minneapolis? I don't know the full story, but if it was just the attempted use of forged money, 
I likely would have just gotten the subject's name and info, seized the fake money, wrote a quick report about it, and put the forged bill into our property evidence room. End of story. No cuffs, no force, not a ton of governmental interest involved. And he says, anyway, I don't want to ramble on, but those are some of the points that can help us think about the whole situation. I don't know if that was helpful, but let me know if you want me to expand on anything or if you have a specific area of inquiry that I can address, please let me know. And so I'll just say to the officer, I'm keeping him and where he's from totally anonymous, uh, but I found that incredibly helpful, maybe most of all just as such a refreshing perspective from someone who's in law enforcement, who is really conscientious, who's trying to understand what happened without the partisanship of saying, oh, I need to defend you know, the boys in blue, nor just needing to say something completely condemnatory uh, to join the popular movement. He's thinking about it very carefully. And that's what I think we need more of. And I think it's, it's just such a tragedy that there's so little thought going on. And, and I do think that it's, I think the videos like the George Floyd video are really important. I think one of the, this is a broader point, but I think one of the benefits of the age we live in is that we are able to see, I mean, there's much more visibility into what human beings are doing, both good and bad. And you see this in all sorts of places. I mean, even something like product quality, you have Amazon reviews now. The level of product quality, I'm sure, has dramatically increased because there's so much more awareness from users of the product, how good the product actually is. That's kind of visibility we have into human behavior. And in general, the more visibility we have into human behavior, the more ethical conduct benefits. Because in general, we want to deal with ethical people. So the more information there is about people's conduct, the more, inf the more it's an incentive toward ethical behavior. And it can also be, it can also alert us to big problems, including we can see something that happens with police. And particularly if it's something that happens frequently, these kinds of videos can bring that to our attention. But they're only valuable if we, if we not only consume them, but we really think about them and we try to think about them in context, because that way we can have an, a broader awareness of what's happening in reality, but we can have a responsible awareness where we're, we're trying to put everything together and draw the right conclusions and, and come up with the right policies. But if we just take this kind of visibility and we just react to it emotionally and we, we bring in all our pre-existing biases and pre-existing agendas, then it can lead to total disaster. And so far, even with the, the George Floyd saga, I don't know how many people have been killed in terms of innocent people and, and police officers, and I think in many cases, innocent police officers, but there's been so much death, absolute death already leaving aside just the massive destruction from rioting and then the you know, the blocking of vital different kinds of services by the protests. This is just such an example of how we're totally thro and so throwing away the opportunity that we have with this information by not truly contextualizing it. And that's part of the reason I felt compelled to talk about it was to just give, give uh, you or anyone who's interested in my ideas more of a framework for thinking about this kind of thing so that there can be a more positive discussion. Again, I don't have much expertise in these issues, but I can give a framework that I think would be beneficial for other people to use in explaining these issues. So 
that is my answer to that. And that is basically the end of our show for today. So as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. You can order my book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, at Amazon. Somebody pointed out Amazon is increasingly doing things that I find objectionable. And so maybe I'll have to have some other source, but man, Amazon is an amazing company in so many ways. So for now, I'm not going to discourage you from getting uh, the book on Amazon. If you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, uh, easy way is just go to industrialprogress.com and sign up for, there's a, a box to sign up for the newsletter. If you have any kind of speaking or media inquiries, sorry if I looked scared for a second, I, I almost dropped the keyboard in my lap, uh, go to industrialprogress.com speaking. And if you um, want to support our work, if you like this show and want to see more things like it, become an accelerator. Go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Okay, next week I will be back. I am planning on having a very interesting guest and I won't preview it because I'm not 100% sure that it'll work out, but it looks very likely uh, that it'll work out. So I'll just give you a hint that it is somebody who's been uh, who's become a pretty prominent figure recently, who's been heavily influenced by Power Hour and is now fighting what I think is a very important fight that, uh, I would like to support. So hopefully that'll be next week. Uh, otherwise, I'm sure it'll be in a coming week. But uh, no matter what, I'll be next back next week with some really important topic. So until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.